Acts 26, 1 through 32. Agrippa said to Paul, You're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they've known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I'm being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim both light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escapes his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you do. 
Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you'll persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The Word of the Lord. Proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and the grace of God has been, historically speaking, a dangerous activity. Multiple dictatorships throughout history have banned public preaching about Jesus, the resurrection, and the grace of God. We know that in El Salvador, the birth narrative of Jesus as Savior was forbidden out of fear that people would have hope in God rather than their political overlords. Whenever corrupted power encounters the gospel, it will try and silence it, criminalize it, or maybe the most sinister of all, it'll try and make it part of the culture so that it can control it and tame it and neuter it. The heart of God that is communicated in Scripture and in the life of Jesus is dangerous to power because it claims the worth and dignity of all human beings. It's dangerous because it calls humans to accountability for how we treat each other and how we interact with creation. And whenever we see the central tenets of the gospel on trial, we're actually seeing humans put God's heart on trial. In our text today, in Acts 26, we encounter yet again the Apostle Paul in a court setting, where he's defending his teaching and his faith in Jesus. But there's more than just a man on trial here. The gospel itself is on trial. God's heart for his creation is on trial. Now, if you've been following along in this series in Acts, you'll know that we left off at the end of Acts 24. So let me just fill us in uh, with an overview of what has happened since the end of chapter 24 till we focus today on chapter 26. So Paul has survived an assassination attempt by a group of religious fanatics. And ironically, his Roman citizenship has granted him more freedom than his Jewish heritage. Because of his citizenship, a Roman official smuggled Paul out of Jerusalem and up the coast to Caesarea, where he could more safely stand trial under the jurisdiction of Governor Felix. But don't for a second think that the Romans are the good guys here. Real life is a lot more gray than the black and white picture that we like to think of. Paul's defense before Felix proves he's innocent. He's innocent of any political, illegal activity. But wanting to keep up his good relationship with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, Felix decides to keep Paul in custody for like two years. In fact, he holds Paul so long that Felix moves on to a different post and is replaced by a governor named Porcius Festus. Now, here are the key moments in chapter 25, the chapter we're kind of skipping over. First of all, there's a lot of repetition with chapter 24. There's repetition in the fact that more religious leaders from Jerusalem come to, to bring charges against Paul, but once again, they have zero witnesses and zero evidence, and the case is thrown out. There's repetition in another plot to try and assassinate Paul. This time, they want to move him from Caesarea back to Jerusalem, basically a death warrant for him. So Paul is finally fed up. 
and he uses his rights as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. This is an extremely dangerous move. While Roman citizens had the right to have their case heard before Caesar, they'd better have a good reason to use Roman resources and demand face time with the emperor himself. But you know who else is in a pinch because of this? Governor Festus. Festus, the Roman head over this area, is now going to have to explain to Caesar why he couldn't handle Paul's case at the local level. Now, it just so happens that this Jewish king Agrippa and his sister Bernice show up at Festus's house. Festus tells them all about Paul, hoping that they can make heads or tails of his story, because at this point, Festus really has no idea what he's going to tell Caesar. So the next day, Festus and Agrippa and Bernice, along with some unnamed officials, they call Paul before them and allow him to speak. Chapter 26 is the next day, and Paul is allowed now to share his story freely. This is the passage that you've just heard in today's scripture reading. And before we dig into the details, let me just name something sort of obvious you may have noticed, and you may be wondering about, and maybe you're just tempted to skip over it. I've often tried to remind us that ancient books were extremely expensive. If I look at my bookshelf, I have over a a dozen different Bibles in different languages and translations. The printing press and computers have made writing and duplication of those writings little more than the cost of paper, ink, and royalties to the scholars who produced them. But in the ancient world, writing and copying a document like, say, the Book of Acts was just as much a work of art as it was a work of history. The parchment on which they wrote had to be prepared by an artisan who would have to cure animal hides and process them through the painstaking multi-step procedures. Those skins would then need to be shaped and woven and affixed to a scroll. Ink would need to be created by hand by another artisan. And the length of the scroll in those times was fairly fixed, which meant that if you wanted to get your document on one scroll, which was way cheaper than multiple scrolls, you had to choose your words wisely. Now Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts as kind of a one scroll one and scroll two, he must have been financed by a wealthy benefactor, most likely the man named Theophilus, who Luke addresses at the beginning of his Gospel and the book of Acts. In the end, the book of Acts might cost as much as a modern luxury car, and copies of these books would have been um, almost as expensive as the originals. I say all this to remind us that the authors of ancient books rarely wasted their words. We see Luke compressing speeches all over the book of Acts. Sermons that would normally last over an hour are compressed to just a few minutes if you read them out loud. Now here's the takeaway for us as curious readers. If we know that ancient writers didn't waste their words, if they used words sparsely, then why does Luke give us three accounts of Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus? Why all of this repetition? Why all of these trial scenes that seem to rehash the same details in slightly different settings? Well, as you might expect, there are a few good answers. The first answer is the simplest and probably one of the best, and it's that Luke includes these stories because they happened and because they move the plot along. Think of all the things that we don't know about Paul or Peter or the early apostles. 
We have no idea what they looked like. We don't know what their parents were like or if they had a favorite food. We don't know what they did for fun or if they played a musical instrument or if they liked sports. There are a lot of interesting things that would endear us to the apostles if we just knew a little bit more about their personalities. But Luke wants to fit all of this on a scroll. And he must just not think that it's that important to tell us more details about the apostles. So instead, he gives us a bunch of super familiar and similar trial scenes? Well, the point of Acts isn't for us to form endearing opinions about the apostles. The point is for us to see the sovereignty and grace and authority of Jesus, the one to whom the apostles kept pointing toward. The early church, suffering from persecution, you know, for them it might be nice to know what Paul liked for dinner, or that Peter had a killer jump shot from behind the three-point line, but it was life-giving and hope-inspiring to know that even when the world powers seem to have the upper hand, Jesus is in control. And when Jesus says, you will receive power from on, on high and will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, it's helpful for the early church to see that actually happening in the book of Acts. And when Jesus tells Paul he's going to preach the gospel in Rome, well, we see this trial and his appeal to Caesar as a victory of Jesus. Jesus is subverting the world system to smuggle the gospel right into the throne room of the Roman Empire, an empire that would be transformed by this very same gospel and by this encounter. But getting more specific, I want to focus on Paul's Damascus Road experiences. Three times we're told the same story, and each time there are slight nuances and details that are unique. For the remainder of our time, I want to consider the three Damascus Road tellings based on their audience. The three Damascus Road experience stories occur in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. All three accounts include something of, of learning that Paul, whose Hebrew name was Saul, that he was a religious zealot and one of the Pharisees. In all three, we learn that he believed that the followers of the Jesus way were dangerous and heretical, and they were a sect that threatened Orthodox Judaism, and were, in fact, a group of blasphemers for worshiping Jesus. That's what we learn in all three accounts. That's what Paul thought about them. And so Paul had gained authority from the high priest to go searching for Jewish Christians that he could arrest and have imprisoned. And in all three accounts, we learn that while he was traveling on one of his persecution missions, the one from Jerusalem to Damascus in Syria, the risen Jesus encountered him and confronted him. And Saul was so moved by this experience that he was transformed. And he began to understand that Jesus is truly the fulfillment of Israel's vocation, that he was what the prophets were pointing to all along. In all three accounts, we have Paul receiving a new mission from Jesus, that he would be a witness to the nations, sharing the good news of Jesus and his saving grace and his saving lordship. So these elements to all three Damascus Road tellings are Paul's encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Resurrection is key. Paul's transformation due to the grace he received from Jesus and Paul's new mission revealing the missionary heart of Jesus. 
But with all these similarities, there are also key differences. And I think the key to the differences lies largely in the audience. So in Acts chapter 9, it's Luke who's telling us the Damascus Road experience. He's telling us as a narrator. And his audience is primarily the reader, first century Christians or first century readers who were considering whether or not to follow Jesus. The story is told in such a way as if to say, you're right to be skeptical of Paul, but look what happened when he encountered Jesus. He is a transformed man. He's God's agent to spread the good news. The resurrection has the power to transform lives, if even Paul's life, then even your life. Now in Acts 22, the audience is different. In Acts 22, Paul is on trial before the Jewish religious leadership. And instead of Luke telling the story as a narrator, he records the story as coming out of Paul's mouth. In that version of the story, we learn about a man named Ananias, who Paul says was a devout Jew, obedient to the law and the prophets. See, Paul wants the Jewish audience to know that the gospel is not anti-Jewish. In fact, the gospel is the fulfillment of all that the Jewish scriptures are pointing toward. And now, in Acts 26, the audience has shifted again. Now we have Festus, representing the Roman Empire, and we have Agrippa and Bernice, representing the political kingdom of Israel. Basically, Paul has the world powers in one room, and he caters his story to reach their ears and to matter to their worldview. This time, the message focuses on resurrection and the centrality of Jesus, the common message, but it also highlights the inclusion of the Gentiles and forgiveness of sin and one family coming together under God. In Paul, we see God's missionary heart. Different settings, different populations, different way of telling the same message. Festus and Agrippa might think they have Paul on trial, but he's in trouble for proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and the good news to the Gentiles. It's really God's heart that's on trial. People in power don't like the message of Jesus. We see God's heart revealed as authoritative and graceful over three main audiences. First, we see God's heart toward Paul. That's why Paul shares his own testimony so often when he's sharing about Jesus. God's grace in our stories is one of the most powerful reminders of God's grace to us. Remember, before Paul was an apostle and author of most of the New Testament letters and known as St. Paul, he was Saul, the church-persecuting religious zealot. He was in favor of stoning Stephen, the early Christian deacon who was falsely framed and murdered by a mob. Jesus showed Paul extreme grace and mercy. And it's only in this third telling of the Damascus Road experience that we hear the details of Jesus saying to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a sharp instrument that shepherds would use uh, to strongly encourage or to goad their cattle to move. And by the first century AD, it became a saying, kind of like, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, was a way of saying, um, why are you being so stubborn? Or resistance is futile, or your lack of faith disturbs me. Well, maybe not that third one, but I just had to throw that in there. Anyway, the point is this, that Jesus had been working in Saul's life well before they met on that road to Damascus. 
that Jesus had been lovingly goading Saul like a good shepherd, and Saul had been resisting. And I wonder if Paul shares this nuance in this third, this third part, because he, he's sharing it to Agrippa, who is a, a Jewish king who himself must have been kicking against his own sort of goads. He had not missed the fact that Jesus w- was crucified and that everyone's saying that he's alive. Anyway, let's, let's go back to Paul. What were the goads in his life? How was it that Jesus was impressing himself upon Paul? Well, we don't know for sure, but there are some memories that I believe came to mind for Saul when he was confronted by Jesus on that road to Damascus. I think Saul was goaded by nagging doubts about what had happened with Stephen. As he held those coats of his comrades and watched them violently throw stones to crush Stephen, a man who had likely been a synagogue member with Saul in Jerusalem, he couldn't help but notice that Stephen was at great peace, that he must have looked more like God than the quote-unquote godly men who were throwing stones to crush his skull. And I wonder if Saul was able to reflect in that moment on seeing the face of Jesus in the face of Stephen. I wonder if on the road to Damascus, Paul had seen Jesus before in Stephen. And I think that Saul was goaded by the teachings of Jesus. As a young man who was an up and coming uh, leader in the Jewish religious community, it would be really doubtful that he had not heard Jesus teach or had not heard of Jesus's teachings. It was likely that he had seen him in public, maybe even made eye contact with him at a teaching or in a crowd. Jesus's word has a way of getting inside us and messing with us. And I think that that may have been one of the goads for Saul. His grace and truth, his way of being with other people, it's unmistakably beautiful and profound. And you can try and ignore the teachings of Jesus, but you just can't quite get them out of your system. You can run from his love, but you can't hide. And so I wonder if Saul was goaded by the haunting words of Jesus. But most of all, I have a feeling that Saul was a human being, right? He's a human being. And if he's human being, then I believe he's also convicted of his own sin. There he is, self-righteous Saul, convicted by the goad of his moral conscience, On the outside, he was a model citizen, a model Jew, a man to be admired and revered. But on the inside, he's just like the rest of us, troubled by his mixed motives and his fears and his anger and his hang-ups. And so we see the heart of God in his mercy and grace toward Paul, an individual who deserved judgment and yet responded to God's grace and was transformed. Second, God's heart of love and compassion toward the world powers, that's on display in Acts 26. You know, the reason for the gospel of Jesus is not just to rescue individuals from individual sins and individual consequences. Jesus came to redeem and to transform the world. The prophet Isaiah spoke of a time when a land sitting in darkness would see a great light, and those sitting in the land of shadow and death, a light would shine upon them. Then, in Matthew 4, Jesus quotes that passage as a description about his own ministry in the world. And now, in Acts 26, we learn that that very same Jesus has given Paul and the early church the job of proclaiming the light of Jesus and opening the eyes of the Gentiles to the good news of Jesus 
and proclaiming that same news to the world powers. The gospel of Jesus rescues people and rescues societies from the grip of Satan. The gospel brings sobriety to those in the trap of addiction. The gospel brings new identity to those who don't fit into the success and power orientation of the world. The gospel sets free the the captive uh, to oppression and the captive to evil. And the gospel topples empires through love and topples emperors through encounters with the true king, Jesus, and his people, the church. What good news that God's heart is not to condemn the world, but to redeem it and to transform it. And that's our mission as well. As the community called to proclaim the apostolic message, we proclaim light to the blind and life in the midst of death. So we've studied the third Damascus Road experience by noting that it is proclaimed by an audience of Paul and it has personal power. And it's proclaimed, too, to the representatives of world power. The gospel in context shows us that it is good news to individuals and to empires, that it will topple hearts and it will topple political systems and redeem them for good. But there is a third audience to consider as well. And that third audience is Luke's intended audience. It's the reader. At first, it was the early church, but as time goes on, that third audience is every reader who has read the book of Acts, including you and me. And what is revealed is that the heart of God is on trial before you and before me. And what we've seen laid before us is the declaration that Jesus rose from the dead and that he's declared Lord of all. And he stands to open our eyes and to rescue us from the captivity of sin and death. And he offers to forgive our sin. And he invites us, no matter who we are or where we come from or what we think about ourselves, he invites us to come and to be part of his new family. He invites you to belong. The heart of God is on trial before the world in Acts 26. The world wants to divide and conquer. The world preaches unity through a system of haves and have-nots. And In front of the world, the heart of God is found guilty, and I am thankful for that. The world can't give me life or meaning or worth, and it can't give you those things either. And so I'm throwing my lot in with Jesus, and I invite you to join me too. Maybe you've been on this journey for a long time and are just doubling down now. That's what I seem to do every week, every time I encounter the gospel. Or maybe you're doing this for the first time. You're saying, I need to belong. I need forgiveness from God. I need new life that the world's not giving me. Let's come to him now in grace and humility. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for giving us this word for your servant Paul who stood before the world powers and proclaimed the gospel. Thank you that obviously your gospel won in that setting like We're talking about Paul and we're talking about the gospel. We're not talking about Caesar anymore in in any way that matters to us. We're not talking about Agrippa or that fallen kingdom for so long ago. We're talking about the risen and reigning Jesus, the giver of life and new life. And I pray for my sisters and brothers and I that you would pour out faith for us, that you would help us to trust you more and more each day with our lives. 
and to receive from you all that you have to give, forgiveness and new life and a family with which to belong. In Jesus' name, amen.